So often when we encounter fear, whether it's in our everyday life of relationships, work, moving about, daily business, or whether we encounter fear in the silence of our sitting and walking, so often we approach it as though it was a problem. Very easy to fix our minds on the fact that when fear comes up, uh, we relate to it as the problem. Oftentimes it's the problem. It's a problem that needs to get fixed. Needs to be solved. Tonight I'd like to suggest a very, very different approach. Very different approach to working with fear, to encountering fear. When I first came into this practice in my early 20s, a very shy, quite an introverted young man and and really um, pretty upset about it. I mean, my, I felt very bottled up. My life wasn't working very well. And uh, so much of my motivation in my first few years of practice had to do with uh, trying to get rid of this fear. And I quite often would have these very elaborate fantasies, especially on retreat, um, about becoming fearless. Uh, it's really something I really wanted quite badly. And oftentimes I re- associated enlightenment with uh, never having to experience fear again. And uh, that aspiration of being fearless, well, I think if we asked everybody in this room if they would at least prefer to be fearless, uh, <laughs> probably we would all raise our hands if we were asked to do that. It's hard to go through life without thinking fear is a problem that it needs to be solved. How do we generally generally relate to fear? Well, certainly one of the ways we relate to fear is, is we try to bury it. And we try to bury it very deep. We push it down, we repress it feels unpleasant, feels something about it, feels very, very uncomfortable. And uh, we try to hide from it. We try to put it down. We try to ignore it. It's one thing that we do. Another approach is that we judge it. And we judge it quite harshly. Quite often we put a moral judgment on it. We feel embarrassed. Even if we're alone and we experience fear, quite often we feel embarrassed by it. Even if no one else is noticing, we feel sometimes quite humiliated by our fear. We hide our fear. It's something I think that's so predominant in this culture. It's something I I became quite sensitive quite early on, which was just the extent uh, of uh, how people hide their fear. There's a real shame to it. There's something that... Uh, there's something wrong about experiencing fear. And so we conceal it from each other. And, and it's extraordinary just how predominant that experience of fear is, yet nobody, or very rarely do we, can we acknowledge it. Do we feel safe enough to acknowledge it to each other? 
So one of the ways we do is we hide it. We create masks. We, we put on uh, a smile. We really don't feel it. We also run from it. We develop all sorts of really clever, brilliant strategies for avoiding it. Sometimes we deny it. We try to distance ourselves from it. Quite often people see practice. Oftentimes when people are reporting something difficult, uh, fear or anger, they'll say, well, I, t- I just need to get a little distance from this experience. And, and we always quite ruthlessly say, um, that's not exactly what the practice is about. It's not about getting distance. You know. And uh, Larry's theme of intimacy, I'm sure, has gotten through to you, and it, it's quite true. It's not about getting distance, but it's about uh, coming into really direct contact. Very, very direct, up close contact. That's what practice is about. Sometimes we try to push through it. This was something I was really familiar with in practice and familiar with it in my life. And we can get quite, sometimes quite aggressive in trying to push through fear. I, early on, I, I had a, uh, and I still continue to have a fear of heights. Um, not so much you know, standing on top of a mountaintop, but standing close to edges and looking down. I find that kind of scary. And uh, in my very early years of practice, I had friends who, who weren't involved in meditation. And um, of course, what do I try to do? Uh, which is, I take up rock climbing. And uh, they were, uh, if you don't know anything about rock climbing, genuine rock climbing, not hiking, climbing, um, it's, uh, it tends to be quite vertical. Uh, and and uh, my first experience was uh, in Yosemite uh, Park, uh, which, if you have a visitor to Yosemite, you know it's quite vertical, quite steep, quite uh, high. And uh, needless to say, I barely survived. Um, and I, I often would sit back and listen to their stories, and they were always taking giant risks. And they were always uh, really often really exposed to tremendous danger. Uh, they would always come back with these incredible stories. Um, and you could see it excited them. The fear kind of excited them. But I was always a bit suspicious of that approach to fear. I think that I began to see through that uh, sense of needing to take risks in order to, to work through the fear. Because I suspected, and I still do, that there were other fears that were perhaps underneath that. And they were using this particular approach of trying to get through it, to, to push through it, um, to really hide from something else, some other fear. Another approach we often take is we fight with it. Endlessly, endlessly fight with fear. We struggle, we argue with ourselves. Uh, We tell ourselves all sorts of things that we shouldn't be experiencing it. Um, We've been practicing for a really long time. Uh, We're really sincere. Uh, Our intentions are really good. Uh, Sometimes our samadhi is really good. And yet we still get confronted with this fear. And we fight with it, we struggle with it. One of the ways we struggle with it, and perhaps you've seen this in some of your inner dialogues, if fear has come up, and I know for many of you, uh, fear has been coming up, 
one of the major approaches that we take is we analyze it. We try to figure it out. We think about it. Nothing wrong with thinking about fear. Nothing wrong with analyzing it. Uh, nothing wrong with talking about it, breaking it down into its elements, looking perhaps at the conditions, why it arises. But in that process, what's important is to also look at the energy underneath the analyzing, to look at the kind of agitation or aversion that quite often drives the analyzing, drives the figuring out. Because quite often the analyzing and the figuring out is really about getting rid of fear. We still have that notion that if we can get rid of it one way or the other, uh, we're going to be in peace. We're going to be in Nibbana. We're going to uh, be free. So this thing that we probably all universally identify as a problem, it's interesting when you start asking people about fear and you ask them to describe it. We all have our unique descriptions of what fear is. So what is it anyway? What, what, uh, what is this thing that, that troubles us so much? Looking at its characteristics, it's an important thing to do. Well, clearly it's an emotion, right? I think some, at least an aspect of it is it's an emotion, right? It's, it's a, a state of mind that arises under certain conditions. Okay, all of us would agree with that probably, that fear arises under certain conditions. And if we uh, started talking about our fears, m- many of them we would share. Uh, but oftentimes, uh, particular fears are particular to each individual person. Uh, certain conditions provoke certain fears. It's very individual, really, when you look at it. And certainly the intensity which it arises, how it expresses itself, is quite different. But it, it truly is an emotion. Right? It's a state of mind. It's a state of mind that arises. It's very conditioned. It arises under certain conditions. Quite often the emotion is characterized by a sense of vulnerability, a feeling of powerlessness. And quite often around that feeling of vulnerability, around that feeling of powerlessness, there's contraction. There's an inability to open. There's a sense of not feeling safe enough, not feeling powerful enough, not feeling steady enough. And so we contract inwardly. Quite often fear, you would not describe fear as a particularly open state. It's contracted. Oftentimes there's a feeling of separation and fear. Not only is there a feeling of separation from others, certainly all of us have experienced how fear gets in the way, right? There's a sense of separation from others, and that's really when fear comes up very strongly, when we feel distant. But also oftentimes there's a strong desire to bridge that separation. It's also feeding the fear, this desire to overcome that separation to feel some kind of unity, to feel some kind of connection. It's also part of fear quite often. And that desire for union, once again, nothing wrong with wanting connection. But once again, quite often, wanting connection is coming out of a place of seeing fear as a problem, something to overcome, having a problem with this feeling of separation and wanting to get through it, to it. 
And quite often we rely on our relationships to do that, to help us with our fear, to help us cover it up, perhaps give us a sense of false security, a sense of power. Fear certainly has its storyline, right? its content, lots of thinking, the tape loops. Quite often fear, most of the time fear has thoughts. Occasionally we can experience fear without thought. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. What are the thoughts? What are the content? What do the stories look like? Well, quite often they have their own internal logic. Uh, quite often quite different uh, than how things either unfold or have unfolded in the past. Uh, and the logic is really often guided by imagination. You know, we imagine a lot of things. We imagine about the future. Fear is often about projecting into the future. Fear is also influenced by the past, by past impressions. And we take those past impressions, take those memories, those associations, and we take them into the present. And then we imagine about the present, how things are going to go. So fear is a state of mind, full of thoughts, feelings of separation, vulnerability. It's also an energy. I'm sure many of you have experienced fear on that level. When you become very sensitive, quite often that's how fear gets experienced, is energy. Sometimes it's very agitated energy. Sometimes it's blocked, very solid, kind of sticks in your throat. But it's a form of energy also. It's not just a mind state. Body sensations. Fear shows up in the body. It's very, very much a mind-body process. Breathing. Certainly fear influences our breathing, and I'm sure all of us have experienced that at one time or another. There's a tendency, if we were going to describe what, what it's like to be breathing when we're frightened. Okay? There's a holding of the breath. You know, there's a contraction around the breath. The breath gets shallower, more frequent. It's rare when we're experiencing fear that the breathing is nice and deep and relaxed, rhythmic. It's not like that starts going really crazy, becomes very arrhythmic. So fear shows up in the breathing. It also shows up in other places in the body. There's a holding that happens when we hit that state of mind of fear. There's a tightness in the body. And when we begin to become sensitive to the body, we can begin to see fear in the body, really up close, direct. Where does it show up? Often it shows up in the face. Not so surprising, given the fact that um, we use, you know, we hide behind our faces. And we accumulate an enormous amount of tension in our faces. That's one of the reasons why, when we're sitting, we often encourage relaxing the face, because there's a lot of tightness there. Fear really resides quite often in the face, the jaw, really quite a place for fear to, to rest is in the jaw, in the face, the throat. Okay, sometimes fear shows up in the throat, and all of us know that kind of tightening and constricting of the throat. 
Our shoulders up like this. Yeah. This is fear. Up like this. Inability to really relax the shoulders. The chest, tight, constricted. Stomach, tight, hurting. Hands, sweating. We all know that one. Before Dharma talks, sweating hands. <laughs> One characteristic about all these sensations, and there are lots of different variations, but one characteristic is certainly they're unpleasant. They're mostly unpleasant. They don't feel that good. When we tap into the level of tension in our body, when we start seeing fear in the body, it isn't pleasant. It's not pleasant to encounter that kind of tightness, that kind of holding. So those are just some of the characteristics. And I think we could start a, a list in this room, and it would be a very, very long list. We'd all come up with some characteristic that I haven't talked about tonight. But certainly it shows up in the body, and it shows up in the, in the mind. The reason I'm going through this list is because, to me, when you begin to describe fear, you get a little closer to the truth. You get a little closer to the truth. Because you, be, you can begin to see fear as a process, not as a thing. And Larry mentioned that last night, talked about the fact that fear is a process. It's an experience that's unfolding. And fear is an experience that unfolds. It moves, it's very, very dynamic. It's not stable. It's not one thing. It's many things. It's constantly changing. It has certain characteristics, but those characteristics are really changing. As we Buddhists like to say, they're impermanent, clearly impermanent. And yet there's a strong identification with fear, powerful identification with fear. Because fear is so conditioned, and we're so conditioned to react to it in a certain way, that it's so easy to take that, that repetition of experience, that repetition of reacting and responding to fear in a certain way. It's so easy to take that as who I am. It's the easiest thing to do, is to take these experiences as who I am. All of our training, all of our education, all of our thoughts tell us that that experience is who we are, that that's me, that's my experience. It's not surprising that we go around assuming that it is, and that we don't question that. What I want to suggest tonight is to see if it's possible to respond to fear in a new way, in a way that doesn't seem, in a way that uh, fear is not seen as a problem. And of course, uh, the approach I want to encourage is beginner's mind. 
Once again, what is, be- what is taking beginner's mind into fear? What does that mean? What does it mean to, to approach it from a really different way, from a really new way, opening to another possibility of relating to fear? Well, certainly it means to be mindful. It means to be mindful with the intent to learn. Simple. Be mindful with the intent to learn, rather than with the intent to get rid of. That's the radical difference between this, this particular approach, Vipassana, and so many other approaches out there. Is that we're being mindful so that we can see. So that we can see the truth of our experience. Not so that we can get rid of something. Not so that we can be free of it, but so that we can see it. That is so different. So different than the way we usually relate to our lives and the way we relate to fear. And that's why it's a practice. And that's why it's a hard practice. To approach fear with a beginner's mind requires uh, quite a bit of work. It also requires a, a balance. Once again, it's the middle path. Fortunately, perhaps unfortunately, life offers us plenty of opportunities to work with it. Lots of opportunities out there. So how to practice with fear? How to relate to it in a bit different way? I think the most important step in working with fear is to acknowledge it. To me, that's the first step, to acknowledge what your experience is. And of course, that takes mindfulness, to recognize it. This is what my experience is. It doesn't have to have a label. You don't have to have that label of fear, anxiety, nervousness but to acknowledge that you're having an experience that's painful, to acknowledge that you're having an experience that's difficult. First step, practice that we teach here at the center quite regularly is the practice of noting, making a soft mental note. In the case of fear, it would be making a small mental note of fear, fear. Extremely helpful practice making notes, not just with fear, but with other different states of mind, different emotions. Because we tend to immediately identify with fear, we immediately begin to fight and struggle with it. We immediately begin to take it as who we are. Making a soft mental note helps us acknowledge it and to begin to recognize it as a state of mind. Noting isn't for everybody. Sometimes noting can become a prison. It's labeling something. It feels artificial. It doesn't resonate. Drop it. Don't do it. It's not helpful. But you might try it. You know, it's, it's something you can do not only in your formal practice, but in your everyday life. You know, I do. When I confront fear, quite often I'll just say, oh, this fear. Fear. Fear is in me. Fear. 
That's very simple. It's amazing how it can soften. Immediately just takes a little bit of the charge, a little bit of that drive to get rid of it out, a little bit of the edge of identifying with it softens. It's one approach, noting. Being mindful of the reaction to fear. And this is a life's work, being mindful of the reaction to fear. Seeing the judgment, okay. seeing the closing down. Instead of jumping to fear is the problem, got to get rid of it. This isn't good. Start examining, start bringing some mindfulness to the reaction to the fear itself, to how we're holding the fear. That's the key. How do we hold the fear? Nothing wrong with fear. Nothing wrong with fear. What causes us so much trouble is how we hold it, how we react, how we respond to it. And we respond to it with aversion, with a pushing away, to, with a getting rid of, with a judgment that there's something wrong. We, we get embarrassed, we're angry, we're upset. And we don't notice the reaction. We're not aware of the judgment. We take it for granted that that's what fear is. We should, have a we, ha we should have a judgment, it's natural, and then we get caught up in this whole judgment process. And we forget to be mindful. And of course, what does that do with fear? This little, little momentary experience of fear, maybe it's a little longer than that, but it's just a little state of mind. What happens? Well, of course, the fear just gets worse, gets stronger, gets more solid, gets more threatening. So bringing mindfulness to the reaction, maybe even making another note about the aversion to it, the judgment, judging, judging. The key is the mindfulness, though, not the noting. It's the mindfulness, that ability to observe it. One of the fruits of working with the breath, one of the fruits of developing concentration and calm is an ability to sustain attention. And that's difficult with fear. It's very difficult to sustain attention when you're working with fear. There's a tendency for the mind to keep bouncing away from it, to keep moving away from it, to keep pushing it away keep running, trying to avoid it. When the mind gets more calm, when the ability to sustain attention grows, we can stay with fear. We can begin to experience fear much more directly and we can also begin to experience the reactions because we're being very attentive to our moment-to-moment -moment experience. We're steady, we're stable. And so we can once again begin to see fear as this process, this unfolding process that's very dynamic, that's very alive. There's nobody there. It's not us. It's just an experience that's unfolding moment by moment. Sustaining the intention tells us that. We don't have to convince ourselves of this. This isn't a pep talk about fear. It's about looking at fear, taking a look at it, and finding out for yourself. And as the attention gets stronger, you see more and more about what your experience is. You see more and more the truth of the experience. You see more and more the process, nature, of the experience. Rather than being caught by the content, rather than being get, getting trapped, we see the process. We see it unfold. We don't identify with it so much. And what happens to it? 
it passes away. It passes away. We did not have to get rid of it. It went by its own nature. So mindfulness, steadiness, sometimes using the noting. Working with the body. One of the challenges of working with mindfulness, investigation, I don't mean investigation in terms of thinking about things, but looking at things very deeply and directly. One of the difficulties in working with fear is the, the content is so powerful. The stories are so convincing. We're so conditioned to react and to respond in some ways that the content, the thoughts, are very difficult to get a handle on. It's very difficult to get balanced because we're being tossed around. We're being tossed around. We're struggling. We're pushing it down. We don't want to deal with it. Later, later. By going to the body, by going to the body, we accomplish several things. First, once again, when we start investigating or start being mindful of fear, we start observing it in the body, we start seeing the sensations. One person reported that fear was showing up in her jaw. In other words, when the experience of fear was, there was the sensations in the jaw. And like a good yogi, she was mindful of those sensations in the jaw. And then the jaw would relax, the process would soften. Much less tendency to identify with those body sensations than the thoughts. Yet it's a very powerful way of working with fear because fear is expressing itself in the body. Being fully present means being in the body. All of us here have worked very, very hard over the last six days or so, being mindful of the breath, being mindful of the body. A lot of us have worked a number of years in this practice, and we've become very sensitive to our bodies. One of the uh, the, uh, byproducts of this practice certainly is that we become very, very sensitive to our bodies, what they're experiencing, what they need, what's good for them, what isn't. We need to remember to start using that tool. We need to remember to use that strength, that ability to connect with the breath, to connect with the body, and to use it in working with fear. Use it in working with fear. That way we're building on our strength. Most of us, our strength isn't so much being mindful of the thoughts moment to moment. You know, we're reacting, we're struggling. That conditioning is deep. But we can work with fear in the body. Last winter, I spent a few weeks, we've already mentioned it, uh, I spent a few weeks at uh, Ajahn Mahabua's monastery in northeast Thailand. Um, of course, Mahabu is one of the last, if not the last, um, forest meditation master, true meditation master, uh, living in Thailand now. That's a, it's a tradition that really has pretty much died out. I mean, his, his monastery gets a, a lot of visitors because of that. And he's uh, quite an extraordinary being. He's quite old. Um, and Every morning, the only teaching he really does now is every morning he comes and he comes down to the sala and he, and he eats 
uh, with the rest of the monks and uh, the lay people come and bring food of course and and uh, then after everybody is eaten he gives a Dharma talk to the villagers he really he doesn't teach the monks so much anymore he's kind of withdrawn from his responsibilities at the monastery uh, but both Narayan and I who were there we sat uh, in the sala and we would uh, even though we we didn't know I don't think I knew one word of Thai uh, language is not my strength and I wasn't there very long uh, but uh, we would sit and we would listen to his Dharma talk and uh, he was very very funny you could tell he was extremely informal uh, really had a good sense of humor the villages were really rolling uh, with laughter uh, and his his energy was just tremendous I mean it just uh, he's in his 80s and it just there's just this tremendous feeling of peace deep deep peace coming from him you really do feel that there's somebody who has done an awful lot of work uh, and uh, so we went, we kind of hoped to, to have a chance to work with him, but we didn't. And uh, instead we had the good fortune to work with uh, this, uh, his, his sort of senior monk, somebody who's been with him for about 35 years, uh, a man named Tanpanya, who's also well along in age. And uh, he's actually Welch, so he can uh, speak English quite well. And uh, so we were on the struggled together here and uh, we got interviews with him on a very regular basis. It was really wonderful. And he's somebody who really absorbed Mahabhu's teaching right into his bones. I mean this man spent 35 years in the monastery. I think he left twice uh, for short times and he kind of regrets leaving. Uh, he's really into the monastery and, and he's a diehard forest monk uh, with also a good sense of humor. And we would go and we would report to him and we would ask him a lot of questions and he was really generous, quite generous with his time. And uh, Of course, uh, sitting in a forest, uh, one of the first things that generally comes up uh, is really intense fear. Uh, and uh, the monks and the teachings reflect it. The monks often discuss fear. It's a major theme in Mahabhu's teachings, how to work with fear. And their main thrust, the way they work with fear, is through the body. You know, you're out there in the forest, and uh, I mean, I had it very good. I had this kuti uh, built in the forest and slightly elevated, just one room, I didn't have windows. Um, it actually had windows, but no screens, so I couldn't open them because animals would get in. It had one room and it had a, a deck that I could do my walking meditation and that's actually where I sat in and walked um, the whole time really and a little kind of outhouse nearby. And I would sit and walk on the deck and do my practice and, and then uh, really happy to be there. You know, it's quite a noisy, you, I'm sure many of you have been in Asia, many have been in the forest, and it, it is a very, very noisy place. We get an idea that it's going to be quiet, uh, quite the opposite. It's uh, really noisy. Um, and then uh, uh, night falls. And uh, so is the fear. <laughs> so is the fear. And... Uh, uh, as soon as it started getting dark, I could just feel it. My first day there, as soon as it started getting dark, I was alone. 
and Kuti was pretty far away from the next person, quite a distance actually from the next person. And uh, fear really started creeping up. You know, I'm used to Cambridge and kind of <laughs> IMS, you know, but you know, the good life. And here I am out there. Uh, and uh, I really didn't have a sense of what kind of animals or creatures were still out there. I, I knew that during Mahabua's time, there were tigers in the forest. And I knew that there weren't tigers anymore. Uh, they were gone, long gone. But I didn't know what else was there. And uh, so I'd be sitting on my porch and of course a lot of fear would come up. And so, so I decided to take this practice on, which would be to uh, sit. My, there was a chair on the deck and I would just watch the sun go down. I couldn't see the sun through the forest, but I would feel the light and then feel it slowly getting softer and softer and darker and darker. And I would just sit there and watch to seeing meditation and experiencing you know, this creeping sense of fear as it started getting darker and darker and feel this, this feeling in my heart like as it sank with the sun, you know, just <laughs> darker and darker. And of course that's when a lot of the creatures kind of start stirring around. And uh, I, I had a rat that would come out at uh, sunset, dark, and, and as soon as it started getting dark, I had this rat scurry by me uh, on my cushion and, and uh, I, I pretty much thought it wasn't going to attack me uh, <laughs> or bite me, but I was never really that sure. I, 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 I convinced myself that it was a field rat, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't one of these big tough city rats, it was just an overgrown field rat. And so I, I was relatively safe, but still, it, it, it brought up a lot of stuff. And then you'd hear sometimes the, in the evening, the rats kind of scratching away at, at, at the kuti when you were trying to sleep. Uh, and that it was very, very creepy. So I had, so the whole time I was here, I had plenty of opportunities to observe my fear. In fact, it was such a predominant theme. I, I, I was astonished just how strong it was and how, how common it was and how, how it really didn't go away. Uh, and, you know, here I was, came so long, so far, paid so much money. <laughs> and and uh, the sitting was free, but getting there wasn't. And, you know, all I was experiencing was fear. The way they work with it in Mahabhava's tradition is to work with it through the body. And that's what the teachings of Tampan, that was the thrust of Tampanya's <coughs> teaching. And I had never worked with it in a very intense way, working with the body in fear. I'd done a lot of looking at it, trying to look at the reactions, you know, of course, noticing it in my body. But with Tampanya, he would just say, go to your body, go to your chest, go to your heart. You know, really stay there, no matter what. Stay in your body, stay, stay in the heart. And so that's what I did. I would just stay with my body, stay with the sensations. I wouldn't get caught in the content. Every time I'd start getting lost in the content, I would try to come back to my body and stay there and observe the sensations as carefully as possible. The fear didn't go away. Okay. It stayed. It was there pretty much the whole time, very strong. When I left the monastery, though, There was a little bit of relief, but there was also a lot of, a real sense of loss. And when I left the retreat, I started moving about again, traveling. What I started noticing was I wasn't reacting 
in quite the same way uh, to experiences that I normally had. You know, certain experiences that would normally provoke fear, some kind of aversion, some kind of judgment. There was so much more softness around those experiences. And I found that when I came back here, you know, I came back to the States, there was just so much less fear you know, and so much less aversion to it. And even though at the time I was working with it in the monastery, um, it continued to be very, very intense. Um, clearly some work had been done. There was some way that that work of mindfulness in the body helped condition, decondition rather, the reaction to fear, that conditioned reaction to fear. Because that's the power of mindfulness. The power of mindfulness is to decondition. Okay, it frees up, it releases, it heals. That's its power, that's its function. It deconditions. And so the power of mindfulness in working with fear, and particularly the powerful power of mindfulness in working with our reactions, our relationship to fear, is that those reactions begin to decondition. They start losing their power just by itself. Nothing has to be done or figured out. The mindfulness does the work itself. That's its job. That's its job, is to reveal, to decondition, to slow down the process, to open it up, to disempower the contraction, the identification. It's amazing by just working with sensations how powerful that can be. So I want to encourage you during the rest of the retreat that when fear comes up, to go in, go, in, go into your bodies. Let's try to stay with your body. Watch those sensations as they change. Begin to see fear as a, a very dynamic process. Not one that is so much me. Not one so much that we identify with. Same with the breath. <coughs> Working with fear. Observe the breathing. Try to stay with your breath. Remember that, remember that strength that all of us have developed around anchoring in the breath and using the breath as coming into the present moment. Continue to use that as a method. Okay. Another powerful practice, one that the Buddha strongly encouraged, recommended, was of course the practice of metta and working with fear. Powerful practice, metta. I might have to go over a few minutes, but we'll see. Another time in a self-retreat. You don't have to go to so exotic places either. I'm sure you've noticed to, to experience fear. Uh, it's like right there. Uh, but one time I was on a self-retreat. And self-retreats, of course, are really good places to look at fear, too. Uh, you kind of lose, you know, you, you, a lot of re relationships reassure us quite often. And, and when we don't have those relationships around, uh, you don't have that person sitting next to you, whatever, um, fear can quite come up on a regular basis. And I was on this self-retreat and going for my morning walk and some of you probably have experienced this in, in uh, intensive retreats, doing retreats, spending a lot of time in silence. That you can, one can drop in to places of fear for no 
you know, no really ex- explicable reason. One just falls into this place of real fear, of uh, so quite often quite terror, really. It's, it's uh, quite frightening, obviously. So I was doing the loop and right in the middle of my self-retreat, getting pretty concentrated, feeling pretty equanimous. And I started tapping into this level of fear inside. And, you know, I didn't quite understand what was going on. And then pretty soon I had an object for my fear. Pretty soon I had this object for my fear. And the object was uh, the dogs around the, uh, this, this pet kind of a loop that I, that I was walking every morning. And I knew in this particular town there was no leash law. So that kind of set up the conditions for me. And uh, so I was walking, I, I could see the dogs weren't on leashes, and uh, fortunately for me, many of the dogs were well, well trained, and they didn't come running into the road, but they certainly barked. You know, a lot of them did a, I mean, every house had a dog, and almost every dog barked um, <laughs> at me when I walked by. Uh, And the fear started, of course, getting stronger and stronger. Every time I walked out, the fear would get stronger and stronger. And of course, I felt very embarrassed, first of all, and kind of humiliated by this fact. I I kept telling myself, you know, you're this 40-something-year-old adult, and uh, you've been practicing a long time, and, and, you know, I don't think I've ever been bitten by a dog. Um, Doesn't seem like any logical reason to be afraid of dogs, but I was terrified. Every time I saw like a tree log in the woods, uh, every time I hear a rustle, a squirrel or something, I, immediately my mind would see, and this is really true, would see a Rottweiler. Uh, one that was ill-treated and, you know, trained to be very hostile. Uh, it would, one of those dogs, one of those barking dogs, since I often didn't really see the dog itself, I would just hear the barking. Um, one, of the t- one time this Rottweiler was going to get out and get me, of course. So I'm right in the middle of this and I keep doing my loop every morning despite it and it's really stirring me up and I'm thinking about it and I'm working on it. I'm doing my practice. I'm being mindful. I'm looking at it in my body. I'm doing all sorts of stuff and I'm still really in an agitated state. I'm really kind of, you know, upset, you know, trying to figure out what to do about this. And one day, I'm coming around the loop, and I come around a corner, and lo and behold, not a Rottweiler, (laughs) thank God. But it was a pretty tough-looking dog. (laughs) And he was standing right in the middle of the road, and he was looking dead at me. (laughs) Completely silent, though completely silent, just looking at me. And I'm looking at him. And, you know, it was just, at that moment, it hit me. I was so vulnerable by that time. I mean, I, I was su- such an agitated state. I looked at the dog, and I said, this is too much. <laughs> this is just too much. And I turned around, and I walked away. Okay. Turned around and walked away. And, of course, I felt humiliated by that. <laughs> beaten by this dog that didn't even bark. <laughs> but I just didn't have it in me to go walking by him because I would have to, I had to go on so close. I just didn't have it in me. 
So the next couple of days, I spent a lot of time ruminating about it, and I, I still went out, but what I decided to do was go the other way, <laughs> halfway, and then come back. <laughs> so I'd get my walk in, but I wouldn't have to go by that corner. Clever, huh? <laughs> so I got to hang out with it for a couple of days, and, and I remember the story about uh, Ajahn Mahabhu and how he... Uh, uh, so there's a lot of exp uh, stories, uh, and, they're, and they're true. I'm sure they're true. Stories about him being in the forest uh, practicing and confronting fear. And there's one story. This is really quite a, a remarkable story. He, I don't, in the forest tradition, anyways, they, they, they do walking, and they usually do quite quick walking. And, and at night, oftentimes, they walk all night long. They walk for like... 12 hours, just walking back and forth. And the, and the way they light their path is, of course, there's a, oftentimes a large candle at one end, you know, sometimes a big, big candle at one end, and another candle at, at the other end, maybe sometimes candles along the side. And that's your lighting, is this candlelight in the middle of this black, dark, animal-infested forest. <laughs> Not my idea of a candlelight romantic <laughs> experience. Quite the opposite. Anyway, there was this time when he was doing walking meditation at night. Came to the end of his path. You know, I'm sure very extremely mindful. I'm sure. And turned around. And what did he face? But a tiger. A tiger. Imagine facing <laughs> on your walking path. A true story. He's 20th century. This happened not so long ago. Facing a tiger out in, this, in, this, out in the night, middle of the night, under candlelight, facing this tiger down. And this tiger's obviously looking at him uh, quite intently, I'm sure. And tigers, as you probably know, often hunt at night. Uh, and certainly he was a uh, potential next meal for that tiger. And what did he do? Well, he didn't do what I did. I'll tell you that. What he did was he sent metta to the tiger. Imagine having that kind of composure. And uh, fortunately for him, his metta was very strong. <laughs> Unlike our weak attempts. His metta was very strong and powerful, and uh, the tiger changed its mind and went away quietly into the woods. And I'm sure he just continued walking. So what I decided to do, given <laughs> clearly there's different standards here, uh, <laughs> What I decided to do was start with myself. <laughs> so on my walk, I would send metta to myself. And of course, at the beginning, I was thinking, well, I'm kind of wimping out here. Um, but you know, after a while, I, the metta started getting in, started seeping in a little bit. And I, I, I started feeling a 
a bit more compassion for myself. You know, I started to soften a little bit. I started getting a, a, some kind of stability, you know, some kind of grounding. Just sending thoughts, loving kindness to myself. You know, a few minutes, walk, be mindful, send a few more uh, thoughts of loving kindness to myself. And I noticed a clear softening happening. It really surprised me. I, very quickly, within a couple of days, there was this softening happening where there was much, much less aversion and judgment towards the fear, towards myself. Like third or fourth day, I go walking out of the house and I find myself just habitually, I talked about habit the other day, habitually made the turn in the direction where I used to walk towards the dog. And about halfway uh, to that corner where I met the dog, the thought came up, wow, wait a second, that dog. Don't forget that dog. And immediately my mind just said, I'll deal with it when I get there. I'll deal with it when I get there. Just came, just came. I'll deal with it when I get there. I got there and the dog wasn't there. (laughs) I mean, I felt lucky, but at the same time I was ready to deal with it this time. You know, I'm not sure what I would have done, but I really approached it in a very different way. I felt much more confident, much more grounded, much more ready, really ready for the unknown. Metta can do that. It can really help ground us. It can help soften. So use the metta practice when you find that fear is particularly intense, or even if it's mild, if you're feeling nervous, upset, out of balance. Bring the mindfulness to it, of course. Acknowledge it. But feel free to use metta anytime. Anytime. It's a valuable tool. The tools that you develop in your formal practice, the tools you develop here on retreat, you really have to remember to use them those times when we need them. We're investing a lot of effort. A lot of effort. And there are a lot of fruits, but we just need to remember uh, to eat the fruit, to use it. Okay. Let's sit for, uh, for a minute or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.